Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life, if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is Wednesday, August the 5th, 2020, and this is episode 2705 of the Survival Podcast. It's interview day on a Wednesday. We have Chris Gilmore today. He is the CEO and lead trainer at a company called Changing World. Their mission is to help individuals and organizations prepare, adapt, and thrive in our quickly changing world. He is an emergency and disaster preparedness consultant. He's also a wilderness and urban survival instructor, a backcountry wilderness guide, a martial artist, a wildlife tracker, a hunter, a permaculture practitioner, modern-day homesteader who grows food and medicinal herbs. And so he's got a... Interesting kind of polymath type background, and we'll have him on in just a minute. We're going to be talking about how you can take the lessons of professional emergency management planning and make them practical and workable in the everyday world of the individual home. This is a great discussion. I really think you're going to enjoy it. Before we get into that, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Hey, I mentioned there that our guest today grows medicinal herbs, and I do too. But I can't grow everything that I need, and I can't always get everything that I need. And I don't always have time to make my own preparations either. So when it comes to whole herbs or preparations or capsules or anything like that that I need that I don't have or don't have time to make, I turn to our long-term sponsor, Western Botanicals, because if it's legal and herbal, you'll find it at Western Botanicals. Great pricing, great service, great people that really care about you, that really will answer the phone. Uh, any day of the week and help you out. Check them out today at westernbotanicals.com. Next up today, bulkammo.com. Man, I'll tell you what, I've said it so many times, I almost hate saying it again, but it's the truth. A gun with no ammo is an expensive club. Maybe a barter item. That's about it. A gun without ammo can't do what a gun's supposed to do. You need ammo. You need to stock up. You need to buy it in bulk. You need to get a great deal. And if you're buying it online, wouldn't it be great if it got to your house faster than you would get it if you went out to the store and bought it? Because by the time you get to the store, it'll be like the weekend. You have to deal with other people. Now you got to wear a damn mask when you're in a gun store. Gee, that's great. Um, wouldn't it be great if there's just a solution where that ammo would just show up so fast? You'd be like, what the hell? Who? What, what's the mailman doing here? My ammo? I just ordered that like two days. What the hell? That's doing business with bulk ammo. Lightning fast shipping. Everything you're looking for in ammo and great pricing, you find it all. You know where? The name tells you where it is and what it does, bulkammo.com. With that, let's go ahead and have a uh, quote of the day today before I bring our, our guest on. We're going to be talking about emergency preparedness today, common theme around here. But I, I looked for a quote that would fit that really well. And uh, the statesman of old, Seneca, Once said of luck, he said, luck is a matter of preparation meeting opportunity. Um, I don't know exactly when he said that or wrote that, but it was somewhere in the first century. Seneca was born about 5 B.C., and I think he died something like 65 A.D., so probably somewhere around 40 A.D. In other words, more than 2,000 years ago. This was said. This is one of those things, if you say it today, people are like, everybody says that. Well, this is one of those things, when something was said 2,000 years ago, and it's as true today, to the point where it almost sounds cliche, that's one of those things you better listen to. 
And that's what we're going to be talking about today. We're going to be talking about how to be prepared, not just in what you have, but in how you think and how you react when the situation comes up, and it's not what you plan for. We'll be talking about that in the real world today with our special guest, Chris Gilmore. Again, CEO and lead trainer at Changing World. With that, hey, Chris, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Yeah, it's great to be here, Jack. Nice to connect. Hey, man, I'm glad to have you on today. Um, we're going to be talking about basically professional emergency management planning, but we're going to try to break it down to like what the person that's not the professional in emergency, emergency planning can learn from that and apply in their own lives. But let's start out, though, with a little bit about like letting the audience get to know you, man. Like Your background's pretty cool. You've got you were a wilderness guide, survival instructor, ecologist. You, you, you do stuff with permaculture. Um, you call yourself a homesteader, like I think most of the people in this audience. What, what, tell us a little bit about your background and what got you into like all these different these different worlds and fields. Sure. Well, you know, in a nutshell, uh, I'm an outdoor guy. That uh, an outdoor guy at heart. Uh, I spent my life, you know, going on canoe trips with my dad growing up. I was a Boy Scout, uh, so I always had a real great connection to the natural world. And through the study of the natural world and I guess the study of culture and life, I started really questioning the direction that the world was going pretty young in life. Uh, started having some concerns, which really brought me into the world of self-reliance. Uh, you know, so that's when I kind of went into the world of permaculture and I traveled all over North America, uh, training with different people on growing food, uh, permaculture, forest gardening, those kinds of things. And simultaneously, I was also taking a ton of courses in, you know, wilderness survival, urban survival, tracking, uh, all that kind of stuff. Um, got into to the point with my skill set, you know, about 15 years ago where I started teaching this stuff. And I guess it's going back probably about eight, nine years ago after a pretty good stint uh, of spending time in the wilderness and doing these extended guided trips. You know, I was leading backcountry canoe trips and teaching survival courses. Uh, I started really thinking about kind of modern day emergency management and what skill sets and tools might be available there just to kind of round out my skill set. Uh, so I actually went back to school to study emergency management. Uh, and to make a long story short, I got on with a, a rather large consulting firm here in Canada uh, and started doing running emergency exercise drills with businesses, even doing some uh, some government contracts. Um, and after a few years of doing that, you know, my heart wasn't totally there because I'm, I'm a grassroots guy at the end of the day. You know, I like helping people. I like helping small businesses, small organizations. So I actually broke off to start my own business, Changing World, which is kind of trying to approach emergency management from a bit more of a holistic uh, skill set where we're bridging things like knowledge of ecology and the ecosystem that supports us, taking concepts like permaculture, uh, looking at the mental component of survival and emergency preparedness, and then also drawing from like the best of the, the tools that our modern emergency management uh, field has. So I've kind of tried to put those all together in a bit of my unique brand. Uh, and that kind of brings me to uh, the work I do today. Uh, maybe the one other caveat I'll just say in there that part of what brought me back to school, too, as a wilderness guide, um, for whatever reason, whenever we got into kind of hairy situations, and I've got, I've got a good number of pretty crazy stories from back in the woods, uh, that was always when I just really stepped up to the plate. You know, I, I, for whatever something would shift in my mind, and it was just like, okay, it's game time. You know, we gotta, uh, we gotta step up to our best selves in this moment. So I got really fascinated by why my body does that, but then also just the whole concept of risk management. Uh, so that was part of my interest in kind of going back to school and actually studying it on a more professional level that way. Got you, man. So, you know, you mentioned your time in the woods and all. Have you, you know, been involved with or seen any, like, real survival stories, things like that, whether it was you or maybe, you know, with, with some of the stuff you do, maybe witnessing other people go through it? Yeah, I, I've had a few myself. Um, and, you know, if you want a, an interesting one, 
Um, my very first summer as a wilderness guide, I was doing flying canoe trips up in the very northern part of Canada. Uh, so we were literally jumping on a float plane and getting dropped off in the middle of nowhere. Uh, we had sat phones, but they were really, really old and rusty at the time. Uh, like sat phone service wasn't what it was today. So we rarely had a signal. Um, and we actually ended up in uh, the middle of a forest fire with a, a group that I was guiding up in the, the far north. Um, so if you can imagine, you know, we've been out there for three, four days. So first off, imagine you get on a float plane. You're already in the middle of the nowhere. You know, you're driving hours down logging roads, uh, no signs of towns, no cell service, anything like that. We jump on a float plane and then we proceed to fly another four hours north into the woods where you don't see any sign of civilization. Uh, we get dropped off on a lake and you say to the plane, OK, pick us up back in this exact same spot in 10 days. Uh, we head out to go do this big loop that we have mapped out. We haven't seen anybody uh, the entire time we're out there. And the one day we're paddling down this really long, narrow creek, uh, and we happen to be paddling into the wind. And all of a sudden we start uh, smelling a little bit of smoke in the distance. And I'm like, oh, that's interesting. You know, is there someone up there having a campfire? Um, and, you know, again, to make a long story short, uh, it progresses pretty quickly from smoke to all of a sudden actually having little bits of ash drop on us to suddenly seeing a big plume of smoke and starting to see the water bombers coming in. Uh, but by this time, it's so smoky above us that we realize that the water bombers can't even see us. I pull out the sat phone. It doesn't work. Uh, and now we need to make a decision. We realize that we're actually paddling towards a forest fire. Um, so what we actually ended up deciding to do, interesting enough, so we're paddling into the wind right now, meaning the fire is coming towards us. We're on a super narrow stretch of water. So if that uh, fire proceeds, there's no way we're going to outrun it unless the wind changes on us. Uh, so we actually had to make a decision in that moment, or I did as the guide, that we were actually going to continue to paddle into the fire or towards it uh, and basically race to this big lake and get out into the middle of the lake. Uh, we got out into the middle of the lake. We flipped our canoes upside down. So you can imagine we're out in the water now. Uh, underneath our canoes in the middle of a lake, we've all got bandanas wrapped around because um, the air is getting quite smoky. And we got a real lucky kind of twist in fate in that the wind happened to shift around the, the same time. It was blowing out of the south and it shifted out of the west. Uh, and we literally witnessed the fire burn up the southern end of this big lake and then shift and move on. Um, and then and then uh, we're able to actually camp the night there and then turn around and paddle it the next day when we felt safe. So that, that was probably one of my top... Um, yeah, I, I mean, it's not a survival situation in the sense of like having to like whatever light a fire without a match or anything like that. Sure. But it's, it's probably uh, was more threatening than other survival situations I've been in where, you know, I've been lost in the woods multiple times. Uh, I was lost out in the mountains in British Columbia, uh, had to spend a night in the woods uh, with the, with somebody with almost no supplies. You know, I mean, really, it's that first story is an actual survival situation. If you're knowledgeable and prepared a night in the woods shouldn't be a survival situation. It really exactly. shouldn't. But, but when, when I don't care who you are, and I don't care what you know, um, I've seen what forest fires can do. And one shift of the wind or, you know, fire reaches the, if fire going downhill goes slow. So it reaches, like you're on the other end, and it reaches the bottom and starts coming up the other side. I mean, it, 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 people think, well, I'll just go away from the fire. No, no, you won't, right? I mean, there's a point at which if you're caught in the wrong place at the wrong time, you even have time to think about the fact that there's not a lot to do other than hopefully you can find a cave or dig a hole in the ground. I mean, there is a point with fire where it takes on literally a life of its own, and it can move quicker than any living thing can move. You could be a damn cheetah and you're not getting away. 
Yeah, and one of the really interesting things there was with the group I was with, of course, their instincts, they all wanted to turn around and head back up the river. Uh, but we literally spent four hours mm. paddling down this river. You know, we're moving at a snail's pace down this river. Yeah. So it's so counterintuitive to this group when I'm saying, hey, no, we're actually, I'm vetoing this. We're actually heading towards the fire. But on the map, I knew we were less than a kilometer away from a big opening lake, uh, which I figured was significantly safer than, than risking turning around and going down that, that river there, right? At least you go out up to your neck, right? I mean, like, if, if all else fails, Go in the water. Like, that's if you have a lake, you have enough dissipation. It, as long as you don't get asphyxiation, which isn't likely there, you're, you're going to be okay. And you've got a big opening. Like, fu fire needs heat, air, and fuel. So, if you could take away one of the three, you change everything. Yeah, and out on the lake, we're going to get more wind draw as well, right? Which yeah. is potentially going to help with the smoke and the oxygen levels, even if we're already in a lower oxygen state. So, yeah, absolutely. So, hey, man. Um, What lessons would you say can be learned from wilderness survival, but then applied to modern emergency preparedness? Because most people are not going to find themselves in the middle of a forest fire or lost in the middle of a of a you know a boreal forest or something like that. People mostly are preparing for things that happen right here. I guess you'd call it in the the everyday world of suburbia and and urban uh, situations. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Great question. I love kind of bridging those different arts and disciplines together. Uh, and, you know, I'd say one of the biggest things, because, you know, in that situation, like you kind of referenced, so I, I have a fair bit of skills. Um, and, you know, back then I had a lot less than I do now even. Uh, but most of my survival skills were actually of no use to me. You know, when I'm <laughs> being able to light a fire with a bow drilled isn't going to do anything when you're facing a forest fire. Uh, and really what the, the factor there that was really helpful was actually mindset and decision making under stress. And one thing that wilderness experience can really teach us is actually getting comfortable with the unknown uh, and getting comfortable with kind of being uncomfortable. Uh, you know, there's uh, you know there's a lot of beauty to being out in the natural world, and a lot of people focus on that aspect of it. But if you spend enough time out in the woods, you're going to get into tricky situations from time to time. And I'm a huge advocate for bringing kids into the outdoors because it's like a, a relatively safe and comfortable way to expose them to risk and risk management decision making. And the more that we can expose ourselves to that in safe-ish experiences, but where there are some consequences to messing up, uh, that more that helps us just be kind of more comfortable being in that uncomfortable situation. Uh, and I think that's relevant to any situation you're going to find yourself in today. You know, and it's one of the holes I often see in the preparedness world is that for a lot of people that, you know, associate themselves as survivalists or preppers or even people don't connect with those terms but are just thinking about the state of the world, everything's theoretical for them. Um, and when things are theoretical for us, you know, one of my favorite sayings is we don't know what we don't know. Um, and that can really come back to bite us, especially when we start kind of forming up these ideas in our head of how things would play out. Uh, we start to build a bit of confidence around that. We develop the skills. We get the gear that we need. We take some courses, all based around the scenario we have in our head. And then something happens, and the scenario doesn't actually play out the way we had planned in our head. Uh, that curveball gets thrown at us. And that's when you really need to be able to adapt, and you need to be kind of uncomfortable making decisions um, when you don't really have all the information you need. And that's one of the biggest things. You know, when I look at the, the modern world of emergency management on a more professional level, um, They have some great kind of frameworks and tools for helping us kind of prepare when we actually it's kind of accepted that we don't know all the variables and there are going to be curveballs. So how do we kind of fill in our blind spots or are prepare for our blind spots uh, when we just don't know what we don't know? Gotcha, man. So how did you go from being kind of this outdoors guy, this you know, wilderness guy to actually working as a professional 
in emergency planning with organizations and governments and things like that? Yeah, as I said, it was kind of a natural progression because in the, the world of outdoors, I was already kind of taking a fascination with the uh, the whole risk management side of it. You know, I love navigating whitewater rivers and um, I love, you know, taking people out into the middle of nowhere where there really is no lifeline. Um, so to be able to do that comfortably, obviously, I had to develop my own skill sets around that. You know, what do you do when you don't have that safety net? Um so that was kind of a natural progression. And simultaneously, I was uh, my wife and I bought some land and we started our homestead and we were starting to integrate some permaculture pieces. Um, and once we kind of rooted, I wasn't kind of this gypsy wilderness guide anymore. I suddenly started thinking, well, how prepared is my actual community if something happens? And, you know, from at least from the outside perspective, my, my thought is, is that we're not actually, you know, that people aren't really putting a lot of time and effort into this, uh, meaning that we're kind of on our own when stuff goes down. So I thought, OK, well, you know, there's got to be something good in the modern uh, emergency management field, you know, people that actually study that for a living, the kind of top down emergency managers. So I, I just started out of interest. I didn't actually plan on doing it as a profession. I just started taking courses uh, at a local college in emergency disaster management. I got a few provincially recognized certifications um, and happened to connect with this really interesting guy that ran this big consulting firm. Uh, we hit it off. And I think because of the way um, you know, I was already used to being in risky situations where you have to make decisions fast from my experience in the woods. I was able to progress rather quickly uh, in the company and get in on some pretty cool exercises and drills. Um, and then, as I said, you know, my, my bridge from that into me having my own consulting practice around it was really just, you know, the top down government approach is just, uh, you know, as much as it's an important part of the world, it's, it's not really where my heart lies. You know, uh, I'm very much a grassroots, self-reliance, small communities, small business kind of guy. So, um, so I really geared my practice towards that after I kind of got some experience in the field from that more professional realm. Gotcha, man. So um, do you have any interesting stories then maybe about how you might have, like, helped an organization prepare for an emergency? Like, you know, somebody that you would call a client or a customer or something like that, you know, that – it's kind of a real world, like this is what really happened. We could kind of tell something was up or we were, it was a generalized plan maybe, you know, either whether it was specific to a disaster or, hey, we're going to get ready in case anything happens. And then how does that translate to what a person could do in their home? Perfect. Yeah, that's a that's a great question right there. And, and I've got an actual perfect example. So um, I created this course a couple of years ago and this, these clients, it was an online course and uh, somebody actually reached out to me. They came across the online course, but they weren't necessarily interested in taking it. They basically said, hey, we saw you do this emergency preparedness thing. Do you do this for organizations? Um, so it was um, a large, uh, we'll just call it an education center that had a number of people living on site. They had a large farm operation there, including animals, uh, gardens. Um, and they have over 10,000 people come through that center throughout the year. Uh, everything from the general public to university students to like people coming and doing on-site internships. Uh, and because they're out on the West Coast, there's always that kind of worry about the big earthquake happening. You know, when's the big earthquake going to happen? Uh, the potential of a, a big tsunami out there happening. So they kind of reached out to me and said, hey, you know, we, we actually had this scary experience last year where um, we lost power and we had a fire on site during an ice storm and the fire department couldn't get to us. So they had to put out the fire themselves uh, without having electricity and they weren't able to get the fire department there because the fire department was really overwhelmed. So it was a real big wake up call. Like, oh, my goodness, you know, everything kind of worked out. But like uh, in a lot of scenarios, it might not have. And what if we had a whole bunch of people on site? And what if something worse happened? And there's this threat of the earthquake in the background. 
So we, we started out a contract uh, and I went out there and did an initial assessment with them. And, and I'm getting to your question here. You know, the skill set that really, I think, helped them. There was a couple pieces that really made a difference. And these can very much be applied to the individual as well. But the first thing I always do with the client is we do what we call a, a critical infrastructure audit. And we basically look at what are what is the infrastructure you rely on every single day for your safety and your well-being. Uh, and critical infrastructure could be things like, you know, your water. It can be the finances that you need to pay the bills. It can be where your food comes from. Uh, it can be communications. And when I say communications, you know, that's both like, okay, we need phones to call each other or we have walkie-talkies. But it's also like, how do we communicate between each other and pass on information so it doesn't get skewed? So we, we basically labeled all of the critical infrastructure we had. And then we did this thing called a HIRA, which is a common practice in the emergency management world. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that, that acronym. It goes under different names. Um, but the basic idea is like a hazard identification or risk assessment. So we look at what are all the potential hazards, and then we rank them on a metrics to figure out which ones it makes most sense to prepare for in the short term, kind of middle term and long term. It's a way to take an overwhelming amount of possibilities and simplify it into an action plan so you're not just overwhelmed by possibilities. So anyways, long story short, again, uh, we look at the critical infrastructure. We do this kind of ranking of their hazards. Um, and then we say, okay, well, let's take an all hazards approach to this. Uh, what are some actions we can check off the box right away that'll potentially help multiple different hazards and protect multiple different pieces of infrastructure at the same time? And then probably the most important thing, after we'd gone through that whole process, we shifted from, we call that in emergency planning, like the planning stage or the organizing stage. And then we shifted into the training and the exercise stage. And the training exercise stage is where it's like, okay, now we have a game plan. But uh, for a lot of places, and this is why, you know, after kind of working on the inside, I don't have a lot of faith in governments always being able to take care of us when things go down, because there's a lot of good plans. But if you don't actually train and practice and test those plans, there's going to be a whole bunch of assumptions in there that probably aren't going to be true. And there's going to be a bunch of variables we missed. So after we did all this planning, we did some training and some very specific tactics, and then we actually ran a mock earthquake exercise. And that was the most potent experience. And up until this point, it was just supposed to be a really short experience with these guys. You know, I was, they basically flew me out there. Uh, we spent three days going through this. Uh, we ran this exercise where suddenly everything fell apart and they realized there was a million more holes that they didn't even know they had. Um, they thought they were quite self-reliant. You know, as a center, they thought, you know, if the big earthquake happened, we could actually be a place that other people could come to. We could support them. And when we did the exercise, they realized, like, wow, we could barely even support ourselves. So that turned into us basically doing the next eight months of ongoing training. And the irony in this, he said, how did it help them in real life uh, when this whole COVID lockdown mm. came down? Now, they didn't actually they don't have a big problem out where they are with actual infected people. But they did have to do with deal with the implications of the lockdown. Suddenly, all their finances disappeared. Suddenly, their movement disappeared. Suddenly, some of their supply chain stopped. And they were able to really, really quickly use all the frameworks and the training we've been working on the last couple of years and apply it to be able to be super adaptable uh, under the, this new context of the, this scenario that we're in right now. Um, so anyways, I think that's a really, really interesting story. And I guess the part that I'll just highlight once more in there, uh, the part that I think was most valuable was actually testing the assumptions by running an emergency exercise. Gotcha. So let's let's talk about that a little bit, you know, um, and how I was kind of, I've talked about this for a long time on the show. In fact, one of the very first episodes I did, it had to be sub-episode 40 at the highest. And today we're doing episode, I think, 2705. That's a while ago, right? I called it the, the, the emergency drill. 
And I said, you know, the thing is, at least you can turn everything back on if this doesn't work out so you don't, you know, have rotted food or whatever. But if you want to see if you're prepared, go home Friday night. Don't tell anybody you're going to do it. Maybe tell mom so you don't have a fight with mom. But the kids don't need to know. Go shut off the, go to the main breaker, shut your power off, take all your car keys, throw them in a the drawer, and say, well, power comes back on 8 o'clock Sunday night. And just see what happens. Just see what happens. And I think that's like one of the biggest things people can do is actually run a drill no matter how you do it. Because what you think you've done and what you've done, and that's one thing. But the other thing is what you haven't done, you don't know until you need to know. So you have to create a situation where at least you're under a simulation of needing to know, if that makes sense. A hundred percent, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I did um, I did this series of online um, like web meetings for actually a group of preppers a number of years ago that wanted to do some training. And it's funny, a lot of these people came in, you know, relatively confident uh, and cocky that they had all the basics kind of covered. Um, and I was, you know, in thinking about designing this training for them, I was kind of like, okay, well, what do I need to do? I really need to kind of like break these guys' confidence a little bit, not because I'm wanting to demean them. No, or undervalue, you want to put them in touch with reality, right? Don't know what they don't know. Yeah, yeah. So, so basically what I did, as simple as it is, you know, all these preppers that are all about gear and bug out bags and all of this, I basically just said to them, okay, you know, our drill tonight, you've got, you got a fire marshal just came and knocked on your door. You got to leave in 10 minutes. Go. Uh, and it's amazing how many deep lessons came out of them when we reflected on the exercise. And you would think, you know, as a hardcore prepper, like that would be easy, you know? Yeah. Um, but the number of things that they thought about when the pressure that was actually on them that they had never thought about when they didn't actually have the 10 minute under the gun timeline was what brought out those really deep lessons, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I know we used to do this in the Army all the time. We'd have these drills. And a lot of times what would happen is there would be a leak that there was going to be a drill, right? Mm. So there's going to be a leak that there's going to be a drill. So the uh, commanding general for South Southcom uh, forces, all of Panama and Central America and all, got wind that this was always happening, and all our drills look really good. So he... He put out the word that was going to be a drill. Then there wasn't a drill. So that happened all the time too. There's rumors. There's going to be, everybody gets their shit ready, right? You know. So like two days later, they call a drill and not first thing in the morning like usual. Call a drill at like three thirty in the afternoon, you know, while everybody's at work, while people are on pass, while some people are on leave, while you know commanders don't know, like just. He immediately called a drill. And it was a pretty big cluster, you know, it really was. But I think we learned more from it than any other drill that we ever had. We actually did fairly well because he didn't, I don't think he did the best timing in this. He took like three or four days between when the so-called drill was, so everybody's guard was down. But that meant everybody, like, you don't get all your stuff ready to pull and then, take it all back out. That happens over time. You pull guard duty, whatever. But it still really drove home that, hey, guys, any minute we could get an order. You know, we were an aviation unit, so we could have to be supplying materials to, you know, people a thousand miles away for all we knew and have very little time to get, get gear and get gone. And it was uh, it was an interesting experience, and I don't think there's any replacement for it. Yeah, and you know what? There's there's a serious level. So there's the level of physical training for you folks there and like checking your systems and yeah. making sure, you know, what's working and what's not. But there's also some really good mental training that happens in that as well. And, you know, one of those, I, I, 
I hear people say it all the time, and I certainly agree that mindset uh, is one of the most important survival tools there. And our, our ego can often get in the way of that. You know, people tend, tend to have the tendency not to want to fail and to want to look good. Uh, but if we don't fail, uh, we don't get the lessons that go along with that. So if you, you know, everything's theoretical in your mind, but you haven't put it to the test and you haven't actually failed and been kind of humiliated or embarrassed by how poorly you did on an aspect, you don't really have that dire push to grow or even know about that hole in your game. So running these exercises allows you to fail when there's not harsh consequences for failing. And, you know, that teaches us about our system, but it also helps us deal with our own kind of ego and our own mindset and open us up to the idea. Like, I think you're a lot more prepared if you recognize that you, you just know that you have vulnerabilities. I mean, I have a homestead. I have a ton of experience. I have a ton of survival skills. And I still know that there's stuff that I'm not thinking about. So when I prepare and when I live my life, I live expecting the unexpected. Uh, and if you're not expecting it, it can really blindside you, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. So can you talk about maybe some lessons everyday people can apply to their family preparedness that comes directly out of some of the things you do? Um, I'm looking at your notes here, and like one example would be the four pillars of, of preparedness. How, how would that maybe apply to a family? Sure. Yeah. So for people that aren't prepared or, or aren't aware of what the, the pillars are, I mean, this is like a very standard framework. It's just got different names in different places. The number of the pillars are different, but it's kind of standard across uh, a large chunk of the world. Uh, and basically, the pillars are uh, prevention, mitigation, uh, preparedness, response and recovery. Uh, in Canada or here in Ontario, at least, we, we call them five pillars. I think I believe you guys combine two of them together down in the States there. Uh, it doesn't really matter whether it's four pillars, five pillars. But here's let me let me give you a little bit of a framework that guests could use at home. You know, one thing that I commonly find people come across is uh, we're very emotionally driven or we often are as a stereotype. Uh, so when we think about disaster, disasters and hazards, we often get fixated on these really extreme events. Yet there could be really common things that are way more likely to happen that could actually be very disastrous as well. And we're completely missing those. So the first part of this framework, I would say, is actually to do like a bit of a hazard audit in your life. So you can take a look at, you know, just make a list of all the hazards you can think of. So my house could catch on fire and, you know, there could be an influenza outbreak or a COVID outbreak or a meteor could hit us and the zombies could attack or I could get in a car accident. You know, you literally just brainstorm everything that comes up. But then you go through and you rank those hazards and you basically have two rankings. You have one for the risk level. What's the likelihood of it actually occurring? And then a second ranking for the vulnerability, which vulnerability is basically like, what's the impact of this hazard on me? And what I found when you do this drills, it, it takes a little bit of the emotional bias out of it and forces you to be kind of objective. And pretty quickly, you'll probably notice, oh, okay, there's a whole bunch of hazards on here that are actually pretty high risk and high uh, vulnerability. You know, one of those would be like a, a house fire. You know, I, I know a lot of preppers that put all of this effort into like, you know, preparing for the end of the world. But you go and look at their house and be like, dude, what would you do if your house caught on fire? Like, that's a very plausible scenario uh, that you're missing here right now. Um, and I'm not saying don't prepare for, for other more extreme situations. I'm just saying don't don't let your emotional bias make you miss the other ones. So it allows us to rank and prioritize. And then we basically create like a short term plan where we, we focus on those biggest uh, hazards with the biggest number, you know, high risk, high vulnerability. And then the ones that are in that middle range, which are still possibilities, we push them off and we say, OK, well, that's my maybe six month plan or my one year plan. So that's step number one. 
step number two would then be to say, okay, well, what is the critical infrastructure that I use? You know, so for governments, when we look at critical infrastructure, we think about like our energy and utility systems. We think about our transportation systems. We think about uh, international or national communication systems, health systems, water systems. Well, you have critical infrastructure in your own life, you know, and it's going to be different than what the government's critical infrastructure, but it's just as relevant to you. So you can identify, you know, what are those things that we need on a day-to-day basis that are essential to our well-being and identify them and then look at the hazards and say, well, what vulnerabilities do these hazards uh, cause to our critical infrastructure and is there a way to harden it? And that basically comes back to that framework you just brought up around the four pillars. So now that I've got a few hazards laid out um, and I've assessed what some of the vulnerabilities are, I go through the four pillars as a framework and I say, okay, well, how could I prevent this hazard from taking out this piece of uh, critical infrastructure or prevent it from happening altogether. And you come up with a couple tasks and then you say, OK, well, if it's inevitable that this hazard is going to happen, I can't prevent it. Uh, it is going to damage this critical infrastructure occur. Well, how can I mitigate, which basically means how do I lessen the damages from it? And then you say, OK, well, what would I want in place to have to respond to it? And then what would I want in place afterwards to allow us to recover and get back to some degree of normalcy afterwards? So there's a really, really simple framework, uh, but really that's that's the foundation of big picture emergency management right there. Absolutely, man. Let's talk about some other things that come out of like the the, the professional world. Uh, one term people might have heard but maybe don't understand or see that it would really help them at all would be an OODA loop. You want to talk about oh, that? Yeah. Sure, yeah. I'm not sure if that's something you've chatted about on the, the show in past. I don't think I've heard you, but I can't imagine you haven't done a, a past episode. Probably on. a long time ago. You know, it depends. I mean, again, 2,700 episodes or whatever, right? <laughs> sure, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I don't expect you to remember it all. I don't even remember some of what I did last week. So, um, anyway, so uh, OODA Loop, um, this, this is a really cool, and this, you know, you could probably put this more towards the, the response side of those pillars. It's basically a mental framework that allows us to uh, hopefully make good decisions under stress. And, you know, one of the common variables in emergency management is that we often don't know all the information that we want when we have to make a decision. Um, so we need some sort of framework that allows us to make decisions with what we have in that moment. And, you know, if you look at like really basic human psychology, what often happens when something scares us or, you know, an incident happens, we have that fight, flight, freeze response, right? So some people's instinct is to charge right in there. Some people are freeze, some people run away. And depending on the scenario, um, it might, may or may not be the right answer. You know, sometimes fighting is going to save your life. Other times fighting is what's going to get you killed. Uh, but what often happens is the incident happens, we, we get triggered psychologically, and we instinctively go into one of those things, um, but we haven't actually made a real conscious choice that that's the best option under this unique scenario. Uh, some scenarios maybe we want to run, some scenarios maybe we want to fight, some scenarios we maybe want to freeze. Uh, so we want to make sure we're picking the right response instinctually. So the OODA loop gives us a bit of a mental framework, and it's something that we need to practice. But I've actually got a really interesting story of, uh, again, of teaching this to somebody uh, and then it actually potentially saving them in a pretty scary situation. So I'll run through the loop really quickly. Uh, so it starts with observe. Uh, so it's O-O-D-A, right? So observe, orientate, decide, and act. So observe basically means, okay, the incidents just happened and I'm observing what actually just happened, what information is coming in. And in that natural fight, flight, freeze response, we often go from the observe right into the act and we miss the orientate and we miss the decide part. So I always train people in, in my training when I'm doing stuff is to actually, so we'll go through these like really scary scenarios and I'll actually train people to like, okay, if something crazy happens, your first response is actually to take a breath. 
big, deep breath. And I like saying to people, you know, take a look around. If nobody is uh, about to bleed out, if their heart hasn't stopped, if they're still breathing, if nothing's about to level you and take you out, you've actually got a second to take a breath. If someone's going to die in that next couple of seconds, then you got to move. But if no one's going to die in the next couple of seconds, including you, it's worth it just to take a breath. And that basically triggers you to go into the orientation phase, which is basically like now wide angle vision. Let's take a look around. What are the real hazards? What are my options? What resources do I have available? And you just kind of go through all of that. And then you make a decision based on actually orientating to your decision, uh, sorry, to your situation and the, the more accurate um, assessment of the actual hazard. And then you take an action itself. So that's that's the basic uh, concept of the OODA loop there. And, you know, OODA is used in all kinds of scenarios. People use it in business. People use it in combat. People use it in martial arts. Um, and the, the way that I've I got this really neat story here, um, but I, I don't want to share this. So the way that I taught it, I was actually doing a training for a summer camp, uh, so a kids camp. And as part of the training, we were basically talking about how to manage, you know, you've got, you're in a park, you've got a bunch of kids, one kid gets hurt, there's a strange person over here, there's all these things going on. How do you use this OODA loop to focus on what your top priority is? Um, but an interesting side note to the OODA loop in psychology. So let's think about an interaction between two people verbally or in a conflict situation. We're both going through the OODA loop at the same time. And theoretically, you know, whoever is further ahead in that OODA loop has is slightly ahead in the, the conflict in the moment there. So I taught the OODA loop at this staff training experience. And then about a month goes by and I get a phone call from this girl. It's like one o'clock in the morning. I'm asleep. My phone rings. Um, I, I look at it and I'm like, who the heck is this? And what are they calling me in the middle of the morning? It must be important. I'm going to answer it. Uh, and this girl on the other end says, hey, Chris, you know, uh, I'm sorry to do this to you. But like, I really got to tell you the story. Is, is it OK? I'm like, OK, sure. Tell me what's going on. So she's walking home. Um, she, she went out to the bar with some friends that night. She's walking home by herself. She's in a big city and she's walking down this dark street by herself. And there's three guys, maybe four guys, uh, and they're very inebriated and they start following her uh, and they're basically shouting at her and being very aggressive and they're picking up speed on her and they're, they're saying things that really worry her. And her first instinct, of course, is to go into that fight flight freeze and she goes into the basically she basically goes into the flight stage so she starts to basically curl up in a little ball she puts her head down and she tries to walk faster um and all of a sudden she has this moment where the oodle loop flashes into her head and she's like okay like if i just walk away like these guys are going to just walk faster too they're probably faster than me there's more people i need to orientate to what my options are so she said she actually took a breath while she was walking and she orientated she said okay is there anyone that i could call for help nope uh, are there any lights on from houses? Nope. Uh, okay, I'm on my own here. What what am I going to do next? And uh, based on a story that I told her, she took a little bit of a risk, but she was already in a risky situation. And what she basically realized is, okay, I need to figure this out on my own. So I need to scramble their OODA loop right now. So I'm ahead in this scenario. Because right now, they're ahead of me in the OODA loop. They saw me. They yeah. made a decision. They orientated, hey, there's a dark street here. There's nobody around. We're going to follow you. So now they're at the act stage where she's just in the observe stage, right? She's like, I need to flip this on them. So this is all happening in a matter of seconds in her head. Um, and without giving it too much more thought, uh, and as I said, she did take a risk here, but she was already in a risky situation. She turned around with her phone uh, and she basically started walking towards the guys and said, I'm recording you right now and I've already called the police. They're on their way. And the three guys just turned and ran. Yeah. And basically what happened, you know, they if they had actually thought it through, they probably would say, well, there's no way she talked to the police like we didn't actually see her talking. Yeah. Um, you know, there's nobody watching us. Even if she did call the police, they're going to be a little bit 
like logically they were actually in that moment in that bad of a situation but what happened is she scrambled their OODA loop and she caused them to go into the flight response um and she basically reversed it on them. So I think that OODA loop is a phenomenal framework for making decisions under stress. And I apply it to all kinds of different situations all the time. And I found it really, really valuable. But I love that story for just uh, the example that, that it is of how it works. And uh, it's really cool to see how, you know, we were doing a training for a summer camp around keeping kids safe. And yet the same framework and mindset applied to this totally different situation where somebody's physical well-being is under threat. It, it was practical because of the mindset. Yeah, that's, that's a great scenario. And it's also one of those things that, like, the reason we examine these scenarios is you, you figure out, even when it worked, what you could have done better. So, like, that was actually a pretty good plan. Um, I think that, and it, who knows when it occurred, so how likely would this be? But I, I think today, if you were going to enact the same plan, um, having the phone in your ear, then turning it, right? Okay, there's, there's more upselling that this has happened. But mm -hmm. two, I'm streaming your video live now. Yeah. Right. Okay. Well, now, because now, if I take your phone away, I'm, I'm boned. Right. I wanted to say another word there, but you know, you know, you're okay. Shit. I, we got to get the hell out of here. We already have a problem. We got to go. And that is that's exactly what you've done. You've scrambled the other the other party's loot. That's that's a great way to put it. Um, and to bring it back on your point there, Jack, yeah. just to say that that's where you know running these mock exercises exposes you to those extra two little touches. You know, because yeah. she'd never experienced that before. So she did two things that worked, but you just added two more that would really up things in her favor. Yeah. And if you were to run, you know, mock disasters or exercises from time to time, you're probably going to think of some of those things before you're actually in the situation. And then it becomes more intuitive when you actually really need it. Yeah. And in that situation, you're also dealing with um, counter victimology is what you're really dealing with there. Like, so you know that people that do shit like this, right? These people that were doing this, these are not Boy Scouts, right? These are not, even if they weren't actually going to do anything, even if they were doing it because they thought it was a, like they were trying to be intimidating, they thought it was a joke, they weren't actually going to hurt her, like whatever, you're dealing with scumbags. Like that is a scumbag move, no matter how far it goes. Or, like that's already far enough, you've already qualified for scumbag. We just want to know what level of scumbag you are. Those people, whether they know it or not, practice very good victimology. Mm -hmm. They look for people, and, and people that are this type of predator have an ability, an ability to spot a victim, and that, that is not usually based on reality, it's based on behavior. So I'm looking at the size of this person, I'm looking at their demeanor, I'm looking at the way that they're moving, I'm looking at, like you said, we're looking at the situation where she is, she's isolated, it's the lion that's, that's tracking the herd of wildebeest, and the one wildebeest that's not quite with it kind of skews off to the side. He might not even be the weakest wildebeest, but he made the mistake, and now we've got him isolated from the herd. That's the one they're going to go after. But even in that situation, sometimes if that's like a big bull wildebeest and it turns and it looks at those lions like, this is going to, if we're going to do this, we're going to do this. They're, you know what? Let's go get us one that we can get from behind. Like predators make that decision all the time. This is going to cost something, and I don't know that I want to pay. And I don't know what I don't know. I don't know, now that I'm being approached this way, I don't know if that woman has a gun, a can of mace, and, and now that she's being loud, I don't know if all of a sudden the isolation is broken. I, so you're creating now this thing where the other party is in this, 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 this period of doubt. And my one caveat with that is if you end up in that situation, I don't care how badass you think you are or, or what advantage you think you have, you use that to get out. 
you go. You're, you're like you made that. Now, now, if you want to follow up with police, like reporting, obs observation of these people, that's fine. But you get out of the vulnerable situation while you've created the disruption because that can fade on you really quick too, right? A hundred percent. Because you know they reset. You know, <laughs> funny story. Lessons from nature here, bringing it back in. Uh, which you could apply 100% to this exact scenario. So I, I had an experience once. I'm walking through the woods. It's during hunting season. Um, and it's hilarious. Of all things, you know, I'm looking for grouse. And all of a sudden, uh, this quail pops out of the wood with its tail, its tail up. You know, it's mm -hmm. the size of, like, a softball. But mm -hmm. it just comes barreling at me. And <laughs> I, it basically oodle loop. It scrambled my oodle loop. So I, I have a gun in my hand. And yeah. I go to the flight response. I literally turn and I start to jog. Like run away from this bird because it just it shook me up. It, it went put me into the psychological place. But very quickly, I'm basically running down the trail, and all of a sudden, I have a thought: Wait a minute, I could just punt this thing, and I've got a gun on my hand. Why am I running? So then I stopped and I turned around and I came back, uh, and that's when I chased the bird off. At this point, right? But just that this is just an example of what you were saying with this girl. You know, thinking about how the psychology of it works. So basically, I just reset my OODA loop. Now I've turned around because yep. I've orientated. I'm coming back. Yep. And if she did not use that initial piece of time when she'd actually scrambled them and they're in the observe uh, action phase, then they could actually suddenly get back to that orientate phase and then make a new plan uh, and then come back at her a second time, right? So it, it's, yeah. this thing is, it's a game that goes back and forth and a dance. Yeah, that uh, quail, that quail was like a super smart quail. As soon as you turned and ran, what you should have heard was, <laughs> right? Like the wing beats <laughs> and that thing's gone. Like, and you turn around and you're like, damn it! And it was like, ah ha! It was like a cartoon at that point. But that is, and the reason I'm using that imagery because it, it, it sets in people's mind, right? That is how that process works if it works properly. And that's why I talk, I talk about using like pepper spray all the time. And I've also said like, when I went through military training, we were taught how to fight through it. And you don't know if a person you're using it on has been trained to do that. But I don't care who you are, when you get hit with that shit, It, it will break your OODA loop, right? It will scramble it for at least a time. So that's another example of, okay, you're attacked, you're pursued, whatever. You hit a person with pepper spray or mace. You're not a cop. You're not there to arrest them. Go. This, and that, that needs to be, I guess we're going more of like a uh, self-defense or situational awareness situation than the core topic. But I think it's a good segue for a second here. Like people need to understand that. Like in these situations that are dangerous, if you break the cycle Use the cycle to extract, at least to the point of moving to a place of higher ground, metaphorically, because higher ground is not always the best place to be, right? But that, that metaphorical higher ground as quickly as possible, and then you can reassess. But if you pause and then the calculation gets done on the other end, you find that you didn't disable the attacker, you enraged the attacker, who's now going to beat the hell out of you. And, and so all of that has to kind of stay in place in, in the mindset. Yeah, you know, if we want to add another layer to that, just like upping your, your game in that scenario now, um, if you haven't really thought about how to disappear really quick in a dangerous situation, if you haven't thought about mapping um, before, then, you know, her in that scenario, she might just turn around and start running back up the street again, uh, yeah. where there might actually be an amazing alternate route there uh, that, that she could use that would actually be a way better scenario for her. So taking this back to, you know, bridging this to the original conversation about what can people take from these professional emergency management frameworks and apply to their life, 
Uh, I think the, the skill set of constantly mapping when you're out and about in your community is so valuable. Now, whether that's, you know, I just use the example of disappearing because we kind of got into that combat scenario. But I'm also thinking about, you know, when I'm, I drive down to my parents, uh, something I've been doing the last, uh, well, I've been doing this for years, actually, but I've been mapping all the low spots in the road with the thought that, okay, if there's a flood ever and I need to get down to check on my parents, like, is this road even going to be a viable way to get there? You know, so I'm mapping those things. So imagine we have some sort of, we have an earthquake and uh, whatever, some sort of crazy scenario. It doesn't really matter what it is. And I'm like, oh my goodness, I need to go check on my parents. I drive for 40 minutes only to find out that there's a, this road is totally washed out and I can't go there. Now I need to go all the way back and find an alternate route. Uh, that, that just makes that situation so much scarier. But if you're kind of always mapping these and not in like a paranoid way, but I'm always thinking about shelter, water, fire, food, hiding, medical, like everywhere I go. And it's just kind of, it's, it's kind of becomes fun. You know, it's like a little bit of a game. But if you're thinking about those on your day-to-day life, then when you actually find yourself in a situation, you're hopefully more likely to pick those things out quicker and it to be more intuitive for you um, that then allows you just to adapt. So, you know, that thinking like a survival expert, again, the mindset piece uh, is just as important, if not maybe even more important than skills in some situations. Yeah, you know, I actually did kind of two shows. They weren't, they were a series, but they weren't back-to-back. And this was a long time ago, too. And it was this this theory, but it was in a totally different way. It was making a decision... If you had to have one gun in a situation where you were on your own, would it be a .22 or a shotgun? And I had some pushback on it, like, this is ridiculous. Why would you even, blah, 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 blah. And it was like, well, the reality is, if you are prepared, you really, you're right. You shouldn't have to make that decision, right? I, .22 or shotgun, which one? You know, which, what do you mean, which one? Well, which .22, which shotgun, which, you know, which rifle? Like, I got, I'm good. I've got it all, but I can't carry it all. So that was part of the scenario. You can only if you, you can only take one, but the bigger thing was it forced you to mentally go through everything that you would ever actually rely on a firearm for. Let's say in a wilderness survival situation, and it also forced you to acknowledge all the things you would never probably rely on a firearm for. So it caused you to go through these mental scenarios to where it didn't matter what you. So let's say that you did go out hunting, and you were grouse hunting like I used to in Pennsylvania. So you're not taking a 22 for that. And something happens. You go up in what we used to call the Seventh Swamp, and you get lost. And that happens. Trust me. I've seen people in that. I've been up in deer stands watching guys walk in circles that didn't know it in that place. And so you do get lost up there. And now what you have is a shotgun. Well, now you've actually gone through mentally everything that that device does for you including based on what ammo you have with you. Now, that may or may not actually help you in that scenario, but it sure as hell ain't going to hurt you. And if you take that to almost any other thing, where you if you define, okay, so this is an emergency tool of some sort or a plan of some sort, and I'm stuck with just this one or just that one, and now which one's superior if I can only pick one and I don't know why? Then, even if you never end up in that, that specific situation, you end up with a much better mental comprehension of all the things that you might have to rely on. doesn't mean you'll cover everything, but you're now prepared to be more adaptable, if that makes sense. Yeah, and simultaneously, it's just training your mind to think about lots of different variables, to be objective about uh, their likelihood. Um, and, and training yourself to adapt to the situation. You know, Just going through that process trains those three different aspects of your brain. 
Yeah, I think that's really powerful, too, with just about any kind of problem solving. If you have something that you think might be nice to do, let's say on your homestead, you know, like uh, something with aquaponics, and then you realize, like, well, there's a problem there, and you go, you know, it doesn't really matter because I'm not going to do that anyway. I was doing that just yesterday, a thing that I'll never do. I was working through how I would solve the problem even though I didn't need to. Because mm -hmm. as you do, and then, like, so you go, okay, I've solved the problem. Did you really? Right? So then you start thinking, like, okay, what does it mean now that I've done this thing in my head? <laughs> right? And you're like, oh, wait, now there's another problem. So do I need to go back to where I started or do I need to solve that? Like, because that's where you get, like, okay, do I fix this thing or do I avoid it in the first place? And it's, it's very, very, it's very, very powerful for getting that troubleshooting mind running. And that's, that's what all this really is, is troubleshooting. So you have a plan, you have a way that you're going to execute, and then life goes, <laughs> that's nice. I'm glad. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Anyway, here's your, here's your new problem. And you got to, you got to think on your feet. You got to deal with it. What's the old saying we had in the military? No survival, no, no battle plan will ever survive contact with the enemy. <laughs> yeah. You know, it just won't. So let's talk about one more thing and then we'll move on from there. Coming out of the emergency planning field, um, huge amounts of effort. I mean, heroic amounts of effort go into with like, you know, incident response, uh, commanders setting up, you know, uh, response teams and response areas and all into communications. I mean, communications is the life of everything. What can the average person learn from how Uh, emergency professionals handle comms in their own life. Awesome. Yeah, you know, comms is the first thing that falls apart when we do these emergency exercise drills. You know that, that really simple thing that you did as a kid playing the telephone game where you pass the message around? Yeah. You know, it, it, that's it right there. And it happens on a professional level. Um, the whole reason they created the, uh, the incident command system, the ICS system, is because of a lack of interoperability and communications between departments and professional emergency services. So um, without going, you know, we could go off on a whole tangent on that right now, but to, to bring it back to the individual person, I, I think the big takeaway is just that a lot of people underestimate how quickly comms can go down and have a lot of assumptions about what happened. You know, and I've done this before when I'm walking through clients, you know, something that I actually did with this center that I worked with out west uh, when we were going through all the earthquake training for them is I actually before we dove into their plan, I, I left this part of the story before there. So before we dove into their plan, I said, okay, who in your family, if, if this earthquake happens, who in your family is going to be at the top of your mind? And are you going to be able to fulfill your duties inside of this village uh, if you're worried about them? Because that's, that's a real important psychological factor there. You know, we're, we're designing these roles for you. I'm expecting you to step up and, and have a role in response in this organization. But if you're thinking about your own family, uh, you're either not going to do your role well or you're just going to bail altogether. Because, again, that instinct sets in to protect your own, right? Um, so from a, a communication perspective, basically I said, okay, before we dive in and make these plans, I know you hired me to work on your organizational structure. I want us all to make emergency communications plans with the people that we care about the most in our lives so that we know where they're going to be, where we're going to meet, how we're going to do that. We have a plan A, we have a plan B, we have a plan C. And once you know that that structure is in place and there's no assumptions there, um, then you can actually get back to being of help to the greater cause, to your organization, to whatever that scenario is. But sure enough, you know, coming back to your this thought on assumptions there, I started by just asking different people, being like, okay, this happens, you know, do, do you have a plan? And people would say, well, I, I have an idea, you know, we pro we'd meet over here, I'm pretty sure my wife would meet there as well. 
And then you go and chat with the wife, and she's like, well, no, no, I would have met you over here. Like, this is where I would have gone if something happened to our house. So these are real simple things. They don't cost a lot of money, but literally just to talk out some real, real basic things. Like, okay, if we can't get home and we're separated, where are we meeting? Uh, and if we can't meet there, where else are we going to meeting? You know, if the phone lines are jammed locally in my own town, who is the most logical person to call out a town? You know, and the husband might say, well, it would be, uh, be my brother, Bob. And then the wife would be like, no, it would be my sister, Cheryl. We'll have the conversation and pick. Is it Bob or is it Cheryl that you're calling as your out-of-town contact person, right? Um, just take the assumptions out of the, the formula and just kind of map out some basic things. Okay, our family, it doesn't matter the scenario. We're separated. We can't get a hold of each other. Phones aren't working. Where are we meeting? Where are we leaving messages from each other? And what's our plan B and even our plan C for that? And how do we even pass it on to the other person that we're moving to our plan B or our plan C, you know? Um, and it sounds a little bit complex, but at the same time, it, it's pretty intuitive when you start just like walking through the different scenarios there. So getting some form of communications plan and, and making sure you don't have assumptions in place is absolutely critical there. Um, and just know that it happens on a big picture level as well. So it's definitely something we need to be thinking about on a, on an individual level. Yeah, yeah, I would agree with that 100%. I think like one of the things you kind of hit at the beginning of that that is something that I've even forgotten until you hit on it, and that is comms training in the military. And it wasn't, I wasn't a comms specialist or anything. The, the communications training, I got radio training, et cetera, was the same that every single soldier gets, whether you're a mechanic or an infantryman or a file clerk, you get this exact same training. And that training is mostly dedicated to giving the message exactly as it was given to you. Mm. Precisely. Including, you know, using phonetic alphabet and all that. But it was that's a piece of it. But it was that that message must be relayed in the exact form, using the exact words, in the exact way that it was given to you. Because you can teach somebody, I don't know what the hell they use now, but the radios we used back then were the big giant ones you carried around on your back. You look like a Ghostbuster with them. They weighed about a bazillion pounds. You can teach somebody to use that radio. If they have an IQ above like 88, you can teach them how that radio works functionally in about 20 minutes to where they're not an expert on it, but if they can't do something with it, they probably don't need to. But if they transmit the message without the precision, the person making the decision based on the message is making a decision based on faulty information. And so part of your comms plan needs to be beyond, well, I have a ham so I can tie in other hams, or you know, we have this backup system, or we have a CB in every car, whatever it is. right? Beyond that is, how do you communicate so that if you can only get information to somebody else in your family or group, once and it can't be clarified like you had enough time to get you know we're going here meet us there whatever that's what you got time to do that that message is precisely understood and anybody that it's relayed to it's done so in a way that it is once again precisely understood and I have to say that as I think about this now and I'm going back almost 30 years when you get that training They don't explain to you that that's what they're doing and why they're doing it. They just, because it's, it's military training. You do, you repeat, you get a pass or a fail. There's no B. It's, it, there's no A, B, C. There's pass, fail, right? That's how those tests are done. And, but when you look back with perspective, you re, and as you know, as you kind of advance and you take on leadership positions in the military as well, you realize this is what's going on. This is precision for the sake of precision because where that data goes, where that information goes, 
it must go there clearly or it can actually do more harm than good. It's worse than nothing in some ways. Yeah. And you know what? This is, this is actually bringing up another probably big takeaway that I've gotten from the emergency management world um, that, again, is very, very relevant to the individual, to the family, to the, the small organization, is that people tend to make emergency planning really complex. You know, we have these big, thick booklets and, you know, even thinking about like the really geeky prepper that, you know, has this fancy ham set up and like all of this gear and all of these things in place. We, we make things very, very complicated. Um, and under stress and duress, uh, sometimes those complicated systems just get, just get convoluted because of the, the communications that need to be in place to keep those going. Uh, and whenever we can simplify things, I think that's one of the most important things. The guy I actually worked for when I went into the emergency consulting um, on the more professional level, he was all about going into companies and saying, okay, you've got this 30-page plan. I want to make it a one-page plan or a two-page plan. Uh, now, you're going to have subject experts within that organization that you know, they have the other 29 pages in their head, and that's great. But the plan that we're using as a, as a team has to be as simple and as precise as possible. And then it allows for people to bring their subject expertise to the plate. So I, I would just kind of echo that, you know, when you're bringing up that piece there, you know, we can have this big elaborate ham system and this network and stuff. But if you don't have a real simple conversation with your kids, with your family, uh, with the other people in your life that you want to communicate about what exactly you're going to do or even do training, like you said, like, let's practice passing really precise uh, communications to each other. If you miss the real fundamentals and basics, your big complex system falls apart really quickly. And I, I've seen it on a top level with big organizations. I've seen it with governments. Uh, and it's certainly going to happen with individuals if they forget about the, the basics and trying to simplify things. Yeah, I agree completely there, man. So what, let's talk about maybe some low-hanging fruit, the easy things, the layups, the quick, easy actions people can take to get better prepared fast. Sure. Well, um, let's let's go through. We can start with that first one. We were chatting about the survival mindset. I mean, people could just look up that OODA loop uh, for one thing, do a little bit of research on it and just start playing with it. And I like this idea of walking yourself through a scenario uh, and pick something that's kind of scary and edgy. And when you go through it in your mind, make it as real as possible. Uh, so like when you start thinking, you actually start to get a little bit nervous. And when you feel yourself start to get nervous, say, OK, take a breath, orientate. Okay, take another breath, make a decision based on my orientation and act. Okay, what happens next? So just start playing with that OODA loop in day-to-day -day life. So that would be one piece right there. Do a little bit of research on it and then practice training your response to stress actually being, uh, being taking that breath. You know, one of the best guys I ever worked with in the, the outdoors in wilderness, um, in my wilderness guiding days, he was known, didn't know matter, matter what happened. You know, you come to him with the craziest scenario. You know, we were just dog sledding and someone fell off their sled and their axe came off and their legs bleeding. And you go, someone would come up to him and run him and tell him that, like, all panic. And he'd just be like, oh, great. Let's go take a look. He said, oh, great. Every single time he threw a crazy scenario at him. And that was his, like, mental training to just, like, take a breath, orientate to the situation. It's not undermining it. It's actually being really intelligent. So starting to train that as a stress response is something people can work on. Um, as we move, well, the second part, we already mentioned this, is the idea of just starting to do mapping as you're moving about. You know, notice, okay, if it started to hail right now, where would I take cover? If somebody started shooting right now, where, how could I disappear as quickly as possible? Or what would be the safest thing to stand before? If I needed water right now, where would I get it? Uh, if I had to drive to my parents, you know, what might flood out? Where might uh, the... The, uh, the hillside just crumble over the road, you know, what would my ultimate route be? So just starting to map your environment and practicing situational awareness. 
Uh, I would give those two as like kind of low hanging fruit. Um, and they might sound a little bit intimidating if you haven't done it before, but just, just be intuitive. You know, even if you feel like a fool at the beginning and you don't know what you're doing, it's doing it time and time again that allows you to start to get better at it. Right. Um, so for that, um, communications, we could move into real, real simple plans. I mean, this is foundational. Everyone says we should be doing it. And I know so many people that don't is that idea like, okay, have an out of town contact person. You know, if the lines are jammed locally, but I can still get a call outside of town, who it's going to be. Or if we need to evacuate our town altogether. I heard so many scary stories with all the uh, the wildfires that you guys had out in California a couple years ago. And we had that big one out in Alberta. The number of stories of families leaving town in two different directions and then it being days of not knowing each other were alive uh, because they had no plan of who would they call and leave a message with. Where would they meet up again? Right. And to me, that's just terrifying. The thought of like leaving town and not knowing if my wife is alive or not, like that would just be like devastating. And that's really going to impact my own ability to survive in a tricksy situation if I'm terrified about my wife. So have that plan in place. You know, where would you meet? And if you can't get there, where else are you going to meet? And at that place, where are you going to leave a message if you have to leave there for another reason? Who is that out of town contact person? I mean, you can find all kinds of frameworks on the internet for setting up communication plans. Um, I've got some on my website that I share with people. I, I'd imagine maybe you've got resources like that on your site as well. But get a family communications plan in place. Um, and that's that's really low-hanging fruit, and it's just going to bring so much peace of mind into a situation. Awesome, man. So one of the things that I always key in when I read a guest bio is if they're a fellow permaculturist. Do you think that any of the permaculture principles or techniques or strategies or mindsets or maybe the permaculture lens can aid people in disaster planning? Because I've actually found the PDM, uh, the Permaculture Designer Manual, for those that aren't familiar with that term, uh, to be a, uh, in some of the components of it, to be a pretty damn good disaster preparedness guide. It is. If you go through the, the principles in permaculture, they're brilliant for design. Uh, and I actually taught a workshop not that long ago. I, I was a guest at a, a, an online PDC. It was this organization. They were doing their first online PDC, and they actually had me do a two-hour class on uh, permaculture design for disaster preparedness. And, um, you know, one of the, it was interesting. So what we broke into breakout groups. We gave them kind of a design project thinking about permaculture. And one of the girls in the group is kind of neat. Uh, I forget where she's from, but she's from an urban center, and they're building a um, – a bit of like an education. I think there was going to be some sort of school there for kids or some sort of kids program. And they were going to have gardens and like a little community CSA all in an urban center. But they're in an area where they have a high crime rate, uh, where they're worried about kidnappings. They're worried about shootings. They're worried about theft. And she was really struggling with this idea. You know, we want to create this this community hub that's kind of trying to create something better. So putting up barbed wire around it and security cameras isn't really creating the space that we want. But at the same time, we kind of feel like we need it because of the, the, the threats that are there, you know? So we had a ton of fun looking at, well, let's look at permaculture design principles and how could we actually use landscape design to create a space that meets some of those features that the barbed wire fence would meet. Um, you know, and some of the things we talked about, you know, is actually creating a perimeter around uh, the whole closure of really thick thorny shrubs that have beautiful flowers. So people walking by, they're just going to see the cool sign that it's a community center. Uh, you know, they're going to look at this uh, border around it and say they're not thinking barbed wire fence. They're not thinking security. Yeah. It actually looks really pretty. It, it works with the, the vision of this community organization, but it's, it's, it's virtually a barbed wire fence, you know? And then we got into where she was worried about, you know, what if, what if somebody came in here and started shooting? I'm like, well, let's lay out all the garden beds and all the paths 
we're going to have one central building that's going to be your safest spot, whether it's a tornado, whether it's hail, or somebody starts shooting. We're going to make one of our shelters that's built really, really strong and resistant to that. Let's design the entire flow of the gardens in the landscape that there's no tripping hazards and you can get there really fast from anywhere on the property. So if people need to start running, it's really clear which way they run and they can get into that building quick. But again, people looking at this space, they're never going to look at that and think that that's for an active shooter. They're just thinking, oh, look at these beautiful gardens and this artwork and all of this stuff. Meanwhile, they've actually designed the landscape thinking about active shooters, thinking about tornadoes, thinking about uh, hail coming in. Uh, so I think there's a million different places. I mean, that's kind of like the physical design of permaculture uh, applied to a space and emergency preparedness. But then I think more what you were touching on was the actual permaculture principles uh, then themselves, you know, the first uh, principle of permaculture, uh, depending on, you know, whose work you follow is observe and interact, you know, which is that first layer of the OODA loop. Uh, let's observe uh, our, our situation here. Absolutely, man. So um, you got a company. It's kind of cool. It's called Changing World. Why'd you call it that? Uh, I mean, the basic premises behind Changing World is that the world is all I mean, I believe the world's been in a perpetual state of change since the beginning of time. Um But it's certainly changing fast right now. You know, whether we're looking at uh, the political landscape or the social landscape or the economic landscape or the environmental landscape, um, things are changing really, really fast. And my belief when I look around, when I observe, is that people aren't actually adapting as fast as the world's actually changing it, whether it's adapting their business to that change or whether it's adapting themselves to the way that the environment's changing, uh, all these different layers. So the, the whole premises behind changing world is helping people adapt and thrive to to the changing world and it's kind of based on based on the premise that humans were actually brought up and raised and created and evolved in really volatile situations full of change and uh, our recent times and modern world here at least where i live in the west have allowed us to be kind of complacent uh, and lose some of our self-reliance so really changing world is about helping people uh, become the adaptable beings that we were meant to be again and to track and observe and orientate and take conscious action around those changes to set themselves up to to be able to take care of themselves their family their community cool man you so you created kind of a a course to address the problem we have with a lot of the population just honestly not even being interested in preparedness. Can you talk about the approach of that course and, and how it makes it more accessible to the average person? Maybe even a person like listening to the show you know, might benefit, but it might be something, is there maybe something that could get the person they've always tried to get to pay attention to maybe pay attention in a different way instead of, you know, listen, instead of listening to Uncle Joe, who's the crazy prepper with guns, Maybe they might listen to something that's a little bit more mainstream that might just get them in gear so Uncle Joe doesn't have to take care of them. Yeah, so when I kind of made the bridge from, you know, working in the more like upper level manage, uh, emergency preparedness world, working as a consultant and said I want to go it on my own, I really started thinking about, you know, just everyday people, small communities and businesses and started, you know, talking to people and realized like most people just aren't prepared at all. Uh, and I started thinking, well, how do we actually get people to do this stuff? You know, most people know that they should be better prepared, uh, but they just don't take the time to do it. You know, it just doesn't become a priority until the hurricane's like on your doorstep or, you know, we're going into lockdown and suddenly there's, you know, a lineup three blocks long at Walmart to get face masks or whatever soap. And, you know, what we basically just witnessed across the world going on, all these people totally scrambling last minute because uh, they hadn't thought ahead about it. Or maybe they kind of thought about it, but they just didn't want to face it. So, 
in designing the course, I thought, okay, we need to make this fun. We need to make it entertaining and we need to get to like the foundations of preparedness really, really quick. So this is, if this is the only stuff you do, it, it allows you to take a significant jump forward in being prepared. So I basically took the idea of an emergency exercise. Uh, I hired a professional media team and we created a mock storm scenario online. So it's kind of this gamified course where we walk people through, we call, we call it a superstorm. It's basically this fictitious idea of this massive hurricane that goes way inland and does all this damage. The storm scenario doesn't matter at all. The essence of the idea is, is we're walking people. What are we doing before? What are we doing during? What are we doing after? We're basically walking people through the pillars, prevention, preparedness, response, recovery. Uh, and we're doing it in this fun gamified way. So each day we have a 20 minute newscast um, where they get told about like the update on the crazy storm that's coming in. And then that you're given a couple fun, simple objectives to do over the next 24 hours as you go about your normal day. But you're kind of playing this mock storm game. So it's kind of like Netflix meets like role playing game meets like real practical training survival course. Um, and it's meant to be for the for everyday people, you know, and, and in my mind, you know, like the preppers. Uh, they're, they're already doing this stuff. And I would say that I think this course could really help preppers expose some of their blind spots. Uh, I've had a number of people that consider themselves quite prepared go through it. And in the experience, they said, oh, wow, man, I, I learned a whole bunch of this course because I just never thought about that. Or I never put the pressure on in the game exercise scenario. Um, so they learned a lot. But it's also really accessible for everyday people that maybe aren't prepared as mining or think crazy Uncle Joe is nuts. And, you know, they don't want to associate themselves or be called a prepper but they also are watching and they're smart and they say well you know as much as i don't want to call myself a prepper i know i should be better prepared so that's kind of who the course is designed for so it's called survive the storms uh there's an s on there on purpose survive the storms.com uh because we use this one storm example but really it's giving you foundational stuff that could be applied to the pandemic it could be applied to a hurricane it could be applied to economic collapse it's really foundational stuff and done in an exercise format to expose some of your blind spots. Gotcha, man. So I would imagine that like everybody else, no matter how prepped you were, the stuff that's happened recently was kind of a, a check, right? Like I think a lot of people that thought they were really prepared that were freaking out back in March, I was like, calm down. If you're prepared, you should be okay. We're starting to question like how well prepared they were. And even for people that it worked out really well for, that have done as good as you could have done, you know, with COVID, the lockdowns, all this stuff, I think everybody learned a little bit. Is there anything that's caused you to think about more and kind of up your own personal game with? Oh, yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Yeah, you know, one of the big ones for us was actually uh, really looking at our garden systems. Um, I had a bit of this, this awakening that, you know, so we grow a ton of food. I've been growing food for 15, really 20 years, you know, because I started uh, in my uh, late teens uh, with my first garden. Um, so... We, we grow a lot of food. We've got our little homestead going on there. But what I really realized when we went into this, you know, our garden's kind of been, as much as I call it a homestead and it's based on permaculture, it's also been designed in the context of a world where we weren't relying on it 100%. Um, and suddenly, you know, back in the fall or sorry, back in the, the winter when it started coming up, this idea, oh, man, we're starting to see food shortages. And regardless of your thoughts on what this whole COVID thing is about, like we're, we're facing impacts of that that are uh, affecting our ability to get things. Uh, they're affecting our daily lives. And my wife and I basically started looking at our garden and we're like, hmm, we could actually be a lot more productive with this space. And there's a lot of things that we actually need to bring on site in order to grow the things that we have here. You know, example would be our chickens and our rabbits. 
um, you know, we just go to the, the agriculture store, we buy food for them. And, you know, there's a bit of like the permaculture built in there and the way that we like cycle them through the gardens and we use them for pest control and we use them to create manure. Um, but this year we started thinking like, wow, you know, what, what systems do we need to put in place so that if we can't go to that store that we can actually produce enough food to feed these animals that are both providing food for us, but are also creating, uh, soil building. They're helping us for pest control. So probably my big realization was just that I, I designed my garden in in the context of um, having a pretty normal life and, and living in a fairly stable world. And we, we really put a lot of effort into making our, our permaculture design and our garden more self-reliant uh, this year and really just closing those last little pits, bits of the loop. And because we were thinking about permaculture, as I said, a lot of those things were close to being closed loops, but we hadn't gone all the way with that extra little step because we didn't actually have the pressure on us to do it. So this was kind of the kick in the butt to realize where some of those those holes were. Very cool, man. So um, do you want to tell people a little bit more one more time about kind of the website you have and, and, and what you have to offer? Sure, yeah. Well, uh, you know, people can check out changingworldproject.com. We're about to actually go through a whole upheaval of that site. It, it's kind of old and outdated. Um, so that's coming new this fall. Um, and I offer consulting services, and uh, there's the Survive the Storms course as well. So if people are interested, whether it's for themselves and they want to expose themselves to some of those holes, I mean, I mean it's a really neat course, you know, survival mindset. We get into communications plans. Uh, we get into gear. We get into health and hygiene. We get into all that kind of stuff in a really kind of fun uh, and practical way. So if you want to test your own systems, check out survivethestorms.com. Or if you there's that person in your family uh, that you want to see them be better prepared, you know, they're not into the prepping survival world, it could be a great gateway for them. So changingworldproject.com, survivethestorms.com. Uh, those are the two ways to, uh, ways to check out what I'm up to. Awesome, Chris. Well, hey, I appreciate you being with us today on the Survival Podcast. Yeah, bud, this was great. It was really nice to be on and uh, really appreciate all the work you've been doing. I've, I've learned a lot from the show over the years as well. So that was a fantastic discussion. I hope you guys got out of it as much as I did. It really uh, it was a great, great episode. It actually did kind of pull me back to some of our, our early days and made me realize maybe we need to pull some more of that stuff into the modern day. Sometimes I think I don't talk about things as much as I should because we've talked about them so much in the past, and I kind of forget, I guess, how many people discover this show for the first time like yesterday. So we'll try to bring some more of this uh, down-to-earth, real-world you know, mechanics of preparedness uh, back to the show. Maybe I'll do something in the same window, same area next week on one of the standalone shows. With that, before uh, we wrap up today, let me remind you, I do have a sale going on today. You can use discount code DELTAFORCE. That's for the rest of the week, by the way, through the weekend, Delta Force. If you use discount code Delta Force, you can get the Survival Podcast Member Support Brigade for 25 bucks. That's stupid cheap. I wasn't planning on doing another sale real soon because uh, I ran the COVID sale for so long because I made a dumb statement about doing it until the lockdowns ended. Um, but, you know, something came up, and I'll, I'll tell you what, I'll tell you the story tomorrow. If you didn't hear the story on Facebook, you, you'll like the story. I'll have a standalone show tomorrow, so I'll have time to be able to tell the story. But a guy was a dummy. Let's leave it at that. A guy was a dummy in the way that he threw a, a fit. And uh, I decided to uh, to take a cue from John Willis and, and turn his uh, his username, which is now defunct. You can actually have it if you want it, because I deleted him from the customer database. But his, his, his username was Delta Force. We'll just call him Jay. 
uh, is in the initial J, uh, so we don't give away his name. But he threw a fit and told me he was never going to be a member again, even though he hadn't been a member since 2011. Uh, it's basically a, a non-user boycott. And uh, I decided I just would have fun with it, and a lot of people have signed up, and I've certainly made more money off of that sale than, uh, than I've ever made from J. And uh, if you would like to participate in Jay's Misery and get the disc uh, get a discount of 50% off of your membership, now would be the time to do it. Just go to survivalpodcast.com and click on Members to learn more. All right, so let's wrap up today. Uh, oh, yeah, how about T-SPAS? The other way you can support us besides being a member, do your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. Do that. No matter what you buy, you will help the show and the work that we do. Uh, it doesn't cost you any extra money. It doesn't really take much extra time. And you can see all the stuff that we recommend. Today's item of the day I haven't brought around for a while because it's been sold out because everything that was storable and protein disappeared. Um, this is the Wild Planet Wild Mackerel. Uh, boneless fillets. This is the best canned fish I've ever eaten. And I've eaten, I'm kind of a connoisseur of canned fish. You know, being a prepper, kind of there, but I'm old school. I, I mean, as a kid, I grew up with my grandfather, and he liked the nastiest, stinkiest, worst sardines. The ones like in the mustard and whatever, you know. And even then, I even liked the ones he ate. And I, I guess I kind of still do in a weird way. Kind of the way that, like, is a jack-in-the-box taco good? No, but yeah, right? Like that? Um, that's how I kind of see like the nasty sardines and the nasty canned fish now. I still even have an affinity for it. But just like you grow up and instead of eating jack-in-the-box tacos or Taco Bell tacos, you discover like Southern California-style fish tacos, right? And that's what these are compared to like a, 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 a jack-in-the-box taco. These are like a, a counterbalance to that of the, the cheap, nasty sardines. These things are not even like a sardine, though. They are I can't believe the texture they have for a canned piece of fish. And mackerel is one of the best fish, especially when we're talking about this kind of mackerel. This isn't like king mackerel. This is the smaller mackerels, um, Atlantic mackerel. This is like, from a mercury standpoint... You know, all fish has some mercury. This is a very, very low level. It's one of the safest fish you can eat. It has a ton of omega-3, which is the fats that we struggle to get. It stores for freaking ever, damn near. It's affordable, and it tastes great. I put it on salads all the time, and I came up with a soup that I used another product from Wild Planet for that the mackerel's better for. I've done them both ways now. I give the recipe and the procedure in the write-up today. Just the picture of it makes me want to make some tomorrow or something like that. Uh, it's just a fantastic way to go. And it kind of gives you like an overview, too, of how to make soup. And not how to make soup where it takes all day long to make soup. Uh, ironically, we're making chicken soup that's taking all day long today. <laughs> But you can make quick soups, too. And uh, maybe I'll do a show next week on making soup. I know it's summer, but yeah, we're heading into the end of the season and using all these extra vegetables and stuff. Anyway, uh, check it out. Remember, you can always help support us by doing your online shopping where? The easy-to-remember little short domain, tspaz.com, T-S-P-A-Z.com. With that, let's go ahead and wrap things up with our song of the day today. Again, I'm off the uh, off the programming menu. Uh, choosing my own music this week instead of letting John Adam do it. I'll go back to his list uh, next week. I wanted a song today that was uplifting, and with a song that I wanted to say that I think most people miss the most important message of. And I wanted something that really kind of talked about freedom in some way. And the song that came to my mind when I put those three criteria in front of me was by Johnny Nash. You might be, who's Johnny Nash? As soon as I tell you the song, you'll be like, oh, him. I can see clearly now. 
is when I can see clearly now the rain is gone. That song. Um, that song is very uplifting. But I think it gets missed that it's not what you think it is. There's one line in it that's the most important line. I can see all obstacles in my way. I can see all obstacles in my way. What this song's about is having the clarity and being able to get out from under whatever's holding you back, that depression, that gloom, that feeling that you can't do. It's not about all the obstacles going away, is it? It's not all the obstacles are out of my way. I can see all obstacles in my way. In other words, all the things in life that you have to get around, get over, get through, beat down, beat back, do whatever you got to do, all the obstacles are still there. I can just see them for what they are now. And because of that, it's going to be a bright, bright, sunshiny day. With that, it's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. I can see clearly now the rain is gone I can see all obstacles in my way Gone are the dark clouds that had me blind It's gonna be Thank you.